personal pleasure, actually, to welcome Carrie Gibson to the seminar. She, of course, is uh, a fairly regular attender of the seminar. Carrie is a, an independent historian. Uh, she's written a very interesting, uh, comprehensive history of the Caribbean called Empire's Crossroads, which I think is quite fascinating. And she's been working on the Hispanic past, the Hispanic past of the United States. But obviously, she's turned her attention to Cuba, to which she's already thought a lot about it there in the past. And you can see her title, which I will repeat today. But I will just say that, that um, how we proceed is that Carrie will talk for about 40 or 45 minutes. And I'll pass it over to Carrie. Great, thank you very much. Um, many thanks to Kate and Gad and Steve for inviting me here today to talk about Cuba. This is the beginning of a new project for me, and this is my first opportunity to put um, some of the ideas out public. So thank you all for coming to the talk, and um, I look forward to comments and questions afterwards. Um, I'll start a bit with an overview of the larger project before going on to the theme of the paper. Um, and I hope it will turn into a book called, roughly at the moment, Buying Cuba. Basically, the idea is that it will be a study of the numerous attempts to control Cuba be it through force, diplomacy, or, as in the case today, outright purchase. It's a multinational tale involving Spain, Britain, the US, and more recently Russia. And the impetus for the idea comes, of course, from the fact that um, Fidel Castro recently died, and how Cuba's political and economic future will progress obviously remains to be seen. I wanted to find a slightly different prism through which to view Cuba and think about its place in the world. And I'm hoping my exploration of the idea of Cuba as a desired object may yield some useful insights about its history and that of the nations that it has interacted with. So, of course, the United States perhaps looms the largest in the Cuban imaginary and vice versa, as this cartoon kind of shows. Um, the Mexican president, Porfirio Diaz, once quipped, Poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. And I think that sentiment is very applicable to Cuba as well. Um, so now that the relations between Cuba and the U.S. are being reconfigured, the specter of U.S. interference is rising up again. It remains to be seen what lies ahead, but the, for the moment, there's some historical riches to mine. The relationship between the Cu Cuba and the U.S. has a unique trajectory, not least because obviously the islands are the biggest in the Caribbean and it's, it's the closest to the United States, as well as aspects of their shared history, such as slavery. What's interesting for me is not so much that Cuba made at least, uh, not so much that the U.S. made at least three cash offers to buy the island, which to modern ears sounds like diplomacy gone mad, but the persistence of the dream of owning Cuba. I suspect we'll see it reawaken in some form over the next few years. There are already rumors that US President Donald Trump wants to put one of his luxury hotels in Havana. Now, no one suspects there'll ever be another cash offer of Cuba, but the possibility of informal empire through trade, economic dependency very much looms. Um, but that's just the perspective looking south from Florida going the other way. It's important, uh, importantly, is the ability of Cuba to weather all these attempts on it and how this contributed to the Cuban sense of national identity. So for this afternoon, I'm going to focus on Cuba and the U.S. specifically and talk about two incidents, which in, my, in what I'm calling the long Cuban-American 19th century, which in my mind runs kind of from the 1790s through the 1920s, that you could kind of argue this century kind of goes up to the revolution. And these are two key moments in that. 
In this paper, I'm going to start by giving a bit of background about early 19th century Cuba and discuss some of the contours that gave it a little bit of a different shape to many of the other islands in the Caribbean, even at this time, as well as a bit of context about the United States uh, in this period. From there, I'm going to talk about two key attempts at purchase. First will be 1853, when both places were slave societies, uh, and then the second will be in 1898, when both were on the brink of massive repositionings in the world, with Cuba about to become an independent country and the US a possible imperial power. So first, I'm going to go um, to some context. Cuba was often called the ever-faithful isle, so it's just a nice vintage map, um, considered to be resolutely loyal to Spain, of whose empire it had been a colony since 1511, this became especially clear in the 19th century, as Spanish America was torn apart by the independence movements in Mexico, Colombia, Chile, and elsewhere. Cubans did not follow suit. There are many reasons for this, but one factor widely agreed upon is that the elites of the planters were too frightened that a push for independence would unleash a slave rebellion on the scale of the one that took place in Saint-Domingue. They'd seen how the divisions within the French ruling elite uh, during France's revolution, had destabilized the plantation regime on its island colony, um, and how by 1791 there was a full-scale revolt underway, leading to the establishment of the Republic of Haiti in 1804, a former sugar colony now governed by its former slaves. So you can see the two, how close the two islands are there. And for a long, for, for, during the beginning of the Haitian Revolution, <coughs> planters and uh, merchants often fled to Santiago in the south of Cuba. So the events in Haiti were something that, that Cubans knew quite intimately, especially the ones in the Oriente uh, region of the, of the island. Um, the revolution in Haiti also presented an opportunity for Cuba. Now that Saint-Domingue was no longer a sugar colony, Cubans could take over this lucrative business, and so they did. Um, as the rise of the number of enslaved people attested. In 1792, there were about 85,000 enslaved people in Cuba, compared with half a million in Saint-Domingue. Um, in the decades that followed, a period began that one historian has termed second slavery. Hundreds of thousands of Africans were brought to Cuba. By 1827, there were ne nearly 300,000 enslaved people. By 1862, 370,000. Um, and enslaved people comprised around 30 or 40% of the island's population roughly in this period. Um, many, though not all, were sent to work in sugar fields. Um, and even in the region uh, around Matanzas alone, the number of sugar mills rose from 37 in 1813 to 93 by 1817. So just to give you a sense of how this, there was a, a real boom. And this is um, a really kind of idealized, you know, faux bucolic uh, painting of a Cuba plant. Um, sugar plantation around 1850, when I was looking for an image of one, um, this came up, and the artist, interestingly, is an, uh, an American, and he would go to Cuba in the winters and paint, and his family were Rhode Island New Englanders, and they invested in sh Cuban sugar money. So they would go down there, and, and he would go down there in the winters and paint, and his family had all these connections. Um, so I thought he was, that was just a kind of interesting footnote, um, but there were a lot of these sort of connections in the 19th century. So, in the back of many minds was the lesson of Haiti. A majority enslaved population um, was a danger. For many Cubans, um, only Spain, through its officials on the island and its military, could prevent a similar uprising. This was the thinking, this was the thinking, but the reality was somewhat different. By 1817, there were already more people of color combined at 340,000 in Cuba than white at around 
291,000. Of the people of color, 115,000 were free and the rest were enslaved. So not surprisingly, in that same year, Spain grants the Cedula de Gracias to allow more white settlers to come in and, and bring more Spanish and Catholic European um, settlers. But the white community had its own fractures and Spanish officials were often unpopular with local Creole elites. So by the 1920s, many heads had been turned by the idea of independence. Um, there had been a number of unsuccessful independence plots by this point, often involving not only some of the, the elites, but people of color as well. Perhaps the best known of these in, is the uh, Ponte Rebellion of 1812. Um, but there'd been another one uncovered before that in 1810 um, that a visitor from the US, William Shaler, had heard about. He had been sent to the island to, quote, feel its pulse. Um, and after he left, he'd heard about this revolutionary plot of independence that involved 15 men. And he was told, quote, the majority are colored men, freed Negroes, and slaves, and vagabonds. There was also agitation outside the island for its independence, with Venezuela's Simon Bolivar calling for independence uh, and freedom in Cuba and Puerto Rico in his 1815 letter from Jamaica. Indeed, in the 1820s in Cuba, there was a plot named after him, the Sons and Rays of Bolivar, that was uncovered. And at the same time, there were all these rumors going around from Colombia and Mexico that they were going to invade and liberate the island. So by the, 20, by the, by the 1820s, there is um, a hotbed of rumors and conspiracies. Um, so while all this was taking place, in the background, the British are there putting pressure on Spain to stop the slave trade. They wanted the Spanish to abolish it and follow them in, in what they had done 20 years earlier. So throughout this whole period, the United States is sitting and watching and waiting. And it's worth reminding ourselves that it was only a new nation itself, really, at that point, having finished its War of Independence in 1783. And the early 19th century proved a fortuitous time as the US managed to acquire the vast Louisiana Territory. Another map, sorry. Um, just to give you a sense of scale, um, that at varying points had been French and Spanish controlled, and they bought it from Napoleon for $15 million in 1803 because he needed to pay for the losses in Saint-Domingue. The United States then was being transformed from what had been a string of seaboard colonies to a in, in a largely Spanish-dominated hemisphere to a growing nation now reaching the Mississippi and after the purchase beyond. Um, still, it did not hold the sort of power European nations did, and much of its initial decades involved juggling the power balances in the Americas, especially when it concerned Spain and Britain. So the near doubling in size that Louis the Louisiana Territory brought the U.S. made its leaders quite optimistic. Thomas Jefferson, the president who oversaw the Louisiana Purchase, wrote to his successor, James Madison, in 1809, that it would not be long before the US would also be in possession of Cuba. This was in part because Napoleon, by this point, had invaded Spain and put his brother on the Spanish throne, um, where he would remain till 1813. So Jefferson thought a weak Spain would be forced to sever its control of Cuba. So he said in his letter to Madison that Bonaparte, quote, will consent to our receiving Cuba into our union to prevent um, our aid to Mexico and the other provinces. That would be a price. Jefferson has this vision that Cuba's gonna be kind of the, the, the southern expansion of, of the US. It's gonna be the southernmost limit. The following year, when William Shaler had been dispatched there, 
Around the same time, another politician, William Claiborne, called Cuba, quote, the real mouth of the Mississippi. So there was a sense in the US that there was, this was just a matter of time. Um, the problem looking around the edges, however, as always, was Britain. The United States was fearful that the European powers, such as France, would begin to meddle in Spanish America, and they might try to grab Cuba from Spain. So by the early 1820s, Britain actually shared this anxiety with the US. And Foreign Secretary George Canning wanted um, James Monroe to agree to a non-annexation pact regarding Cuba. That would stop Britain and the US from trying to annex the island in any way. Um, while that was going on, while discussions in, about that were happening, in uh, September 1822, a Cuban agent named Bernabe Sanchez approached the US government with an offer to annex the island on behalf of the, some of the Creole elites. He was taken seriously enough for Monroe to call a cabinet meeting. Um, John Quincy Adams, who was Secretary of State then, later recalled the conversation in his diary, noting, quote, there are two dangers to be averted by the event. One, that the island should fall into the hands of Great Britain, and the other, that it should be revolutionized by the Negroes. The cabinet decided the time was not right to act on Sanchez's offer, and likewise, after months of deliberation about Canning's plan, there was no agreement with Britain. Um, but there was a new policy for the United States. In his annual message to Congress in December 1823, Monroe set out what would be called his doctrine. It would become the cornerstone of US foreign policy. And what Monroe demanded was that, quote, the American continents, by the free and independent condition which they have assumed and maintain, are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any European powers. It doesn't take too much scratching below the surface in this context to see that Cuba is right there under sort of lighting his anxieties. So although the US wanted to prohibit any part of uh, the Americas from European colonization, there was no mention of the US as a possible colonizer. The idea of annexation had excited many US politicians as well as Cuban elites, both of whom saw mutual benefit from such a possible arrangement. But for the next 30 years, little would come of it. However, by 1848, the landscape changed dramatically. Now we're back to this map again. The Mexican-American War, which ended that year, had resulted in the taking of 51% of Mexico. Um, and this obviously vastly has expanded the US, and now it's stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Um, roughly a decade before that, 1836, the Me Mexican state of Texas, today's Texas down here, um, had broken away over many issues, but most of all slavery. Mexico had tried to end slavery in 1829, but its Anglo settlers from the US who were raising cotton down here in the Gulf, it had sort of set, um, Anglo settler colonies there, didn't want to comply, so they seceded and had a rebellion. After its secession, Texas then tried to join the US as a state, but to do so would have altered the state balance uh, between free and slaveholding. So by the end of the Mexican American War in 1848, the US was in a really precarious position. Under the terms of the 1820 Missouri Compromise, much of this new territory would have to be free states because of where it sat in relation to the 36 degree north latitude line that was part of the, the compromise. President James K. Polk, himself a southerner from Tennessee, reached out to Spain at this point to make an offer of $100 million, or about $3 billion today, for Cuba, in part to appease the southern slaveholders. If slavery could not expand west, it could go to the south. The offer was rejected, though increasingly Cuban annexationists were eager to join the US. The 1840s had been a tumultuous period in the island. 
Uh, there had been slave uprisings in Matanzas in 1843, followed by the brutal suppression in 1844 of an independence conspiracy involving black, white, slave, and free people known as La Escalera, um, which is the Spanish word for ladder, and it was called that because slaves were tied to ladders and beaten in public um, for information and as punishment. British abolitionists continued to put pressure on the island, and planters were becoming nervous that Spain was going to relent. Um, Cuban exiles in New York, New Orleans, and Florida began to build up support for annexation to the U.S. One such group was known as the Order of the Lone Star, inspired by the Texas Rebellion. Apparently, they are the source of the Cuban flag. As Polk's time came to an end, the Cuban situation remained unresolved. His Secretary of State, James Buchanan, would go on to be president in 1857, and he had earlier written, we must have Cuba we can't do without Cuba, and above all, we must not suffer its transfer to Great Britain. We shall acquire it by coup d'etat at some precipitous moment, from which the present state of Europe may not be too distant. Cuba is already ours. I feel it in my finger ends, which is what I used for the part of the title of this talk. So that is some context about what was going on by the 1850s, where, where we are. Um, and from here, I'm going to talk about the most serious attempt by the island, as well as the corresponding efforts to annex it directly and the rise of the filibusterers who were trying to bring this about. A filibusterer is basically a land pirate, and the term comes from the Dutch word for freebooter, and its sort of transliteration into English ended up being filibusterer. Their time of prominence was the 1850s for a couple of reasons. The first was the expansion of the United States, which engendered this kind of confidence that an armed group could march into a territory and potentially take it. Um, and Narciso Lopez was considered to be one such man and one of the earlier filibusters, though their heyday stretched well into the 1850s. And the most famous one is William Walker, who took an expedition down to um, Nicaragua and tried to um, declare himself president. Um, but, but Lopez is sort of five years before him. Lopez's Cuban slave-owning brother-in-law was the leader of the Order of the Lone Star. So you can see how these pieces are all starting to fall into place here. And he was intimately connected to these annexation plots. Lopez, interestingly, though, was not Cuban. He was born in Venezuela, where he fought with the Spanish against the independence movement led by Bolivar. He then went to Cuba, and after that, Spain, and then went back to the island. And then he lost his commission, and then he made some bad business, and then he ended up in these plots. So around the same time in the US, there was a kind of political storm brewing over the inclusion of California as a free state. Um, so the president at the time, Zachary Taylor, was very distracted with hammering out the Compromise of 1850, and he wasn't really paying attention to what was going on in Cuba. So Lopez and his supporters were now deep into a new plot. He rounded up men, largely veterans of the Mexican-American War, and this is very significant because they were um, US veterans. He did not round up Cubans initially, using around $80,000 of raised money to pay, pay for the expedition. And just at the point where they're about to take action, President Taylor gets wind of what they're doing, and he tries to stop them. Um, so he threat threatens them with arrest under the US Neutrality Act, which prohibits organizing private military expeditions in the US against foreign countries. Um, and so that plot was stymied in 1849. So he regroups and he moves to New Orleans. And on the way, he stops in Mississippi and he meets with General John A. Quitman, the governor of Mississippi at the time. And he ends up being a very important ally uh, in this whole effort. 
Quitman shared the dream of Cuba and advised Lopez to invade because he believed once there was a revolt underway, the U.S. would come to their aid and then the island could be annexed. So Lopez rounded up more men, this time about 800, and uh, many of them from the southern states. And he found um, willing allies in Louisiana as well and uh, set off. This time he planned to avoid the neutrality laws and had his men rendezvous in an island off the coast of Mexico. So on the 9th of May, 1850, Lopez and about... 800 men landed at Cardenas, a small town in the north of Cuba, in the Matanzas province, where there'd been earlier unrest in the 1840s. Lopez and his men were able to overtake the small garrison there. A couple Spanish soldiers joined them, but almost everyone else in the vicinity fled. And this is not the reception he'd hoped for. The whole enterprise rested on his ability to spark a, a proper uprising. Instead, he had to force his men back onto the ships and get out of town before the Spanish troops showed up, but they did, and basically the two boats raced all the way to Key West. Upon their arrival, they, they get to Key West, and they find that they've been arrested, they're going to be arrested for violating neutrality laws. So the whole thing is a debacle. They were taken to court, but their lawsuits were dismissed. They tried again in 1851, and that plot was uncovered. Um, uh, and some of the members, this time Lopez I, was not in that one, and they were again brought to trial. There's this whole thing of... We're going to arrest you, but we're not actually going to... We're just going to let it drop. Um, but the newspapers, by this point, had started to pick up this story. And they were beginning to cover this with growing passion, either in favor or very much opposed. So the Cuban question was beginning to divide the nation along with its own domestic um, disputes. While newspapers in New Orleans, along with the New York Sun, cheered the men on, Horace Greeley at the New York Tribune wrote that there was, quote, no overruling necessity for our acquiring Cuba, while the Ohio statesman asked, what do we get if we annex Cuba? We get a vast territory filled with slaves and a population alien to us in religion, habits, language, and government. We get another chance to quarrel and wangle about slavery. Some opponents went so far to argue that the only reasonable response would be to annex Canada, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> So, in, in Cuba, too, support among the elites was beginning to waver. The writings of Jose Antonio Sacco, for instance, were turning minds against this kind of scheme. Sacco had been warning that the risks of U.S. dominance were too great, and the only option for the island was to be, quote, Cuban and not Anglo-Saxon. Lopez and his American and Cuban supporters ignored these arguments and readied themselves to try once. This time, the plot began with two related uprisings in July 1851. One in Puerto Principe, led by Joaquin de Aguero, and another in Trinidad, led by Isidoro Armentos, who they were both friends of his. They were done in the knowledge that Lopez was going to arrive afterwards with his men and be the reinforcements. But it didn't quite work out this way. You can see where this is going. Aguero only managed to enlist 44 people, and the Spaniards soon caught him and Armentos, and they killed them. Lopez was told... He was fed false information and told that the west of the island was in a revolt, and it was better if he'd landed near Havana. So he fell for it, and he took his ships over to Bahia Honda, which is nearer to Havana, and was pursued by the Spaniards and caught in August. You know, once again, his imagined throng of volunteers never materialized. On the 1st of September, Lopez was killed in a public execution, allegedly shouting, my death will not change the destiny of Cuba. End quote, before he died. So although a blow for annexationists on both sides of the Florida Straits, the newspaper coverage was undimmed. The Louisiana Crescent screamed, American blood has been shed, it cries aloud for vengeance, Cuba must be seized. 
President Taylor, by this point, had died in office, and he was succeeded by, succeeded by Millard Fillmore, who stayed neutral, and he professed his horror of all these events to Spain. He had a lot to contend with domestically because tensions were really mounting in the U.S. at this point. Um, Cubans in the U.S. were still undeterred, um, and they pushed on with plans for another invasion, while at the same time, unbeknownst to them, Fillmore's successor, President Franklin Pierce, was working behind the scenes once again to secure a deal to buy the island. Pierce sent pro-annexationist Pierre Soulet, a French-born senator from Louisiana, as minister to Spain with instructions to obtain Cuba. At first, Soulet tried to convince Maria Cristina, the Queen Mother, to cede the island, but she refused. By January 1854, and without permission from the president, Soule offered to give Spain, which had a lot of debt, a loan, but using Cuba as the collateral. And that, too, was rejected. So by April, Soule finally received instructions that gave him um, up to, authorized him to give $130 million uh, for the islands, with the demands that he, quote, detach that island from Spanish domination. And no such detachment was forthcoming, as neither the crown nor the government could be persuaded of the offer. So that October, the Secretary of State organized a meeting of U.S. ministers in, of, to Spain, France, and England in Ostend, Belgium, to discuss what should be done about this Cuban impasse. The resulting course of action was leaked in a document later known as the Ostend Manifesto. And I just put little bits of it here. I put the whole thing, obviously. It's, it said that the men had, quote, arrived at the conclusion that an immediate earnest effort ought to be made by the government of the United States to purchase Cuba from Spain. The island had become to the U.S., quote, an unceasing danger and a permanent cause of anxiety and alarm. Because by this point, Spain had allowed the island's captain general to implement some steps towards it freeing some slaves and curbing the slave trade and, and coming more into line with what Britain had been pressing for for a long time. This general period in Cuba was known as the Africanization crisis, as annexationists on the island in the U.S. claimed that such ameliorations... Um, at any kind of possible uh, emancipation, could tip the island into a long-running war between black and white. Another Haiti loomed. The Austin memo e echoed this anxiety, saying they had fears of a, quote, second Saint Domingo with all its attendant horrors to the, with, to the white race. So the circulation, the leaking of this document, caused a diplomatic row between the U.S. and Spain and Britain, and it stirred up the nascent anti-annexationists in the U.S. as well. Um, although the Mexican-American War and westward expansion had bolstered the popular idea of manifest destiny, um, parts of the public believed the Union would not be able to hold under such growth in the question, with the question of slavery still unresolved. So in domest domestic matters had been in a real state of agitation while Soule had been in Spain, and Pierce had kept his plans quiet. So Cubans and their U.S. allies continued to plot other invasions this time to be led by the, Mississippi, the former Mississippi governor, John Quitman. They proceeded to raise money, recruit men, buy arms, and, um, and were ready to strike, but the planters said, oh, can you wait till after the sugar harvest? <laughs> so they did, and while they were waiting, more and more kind of Africanization rumors were circulating. Quitman and the other annexationists were getting really <clears throat> fearful that Spain was going to just liberate the slaves before they had a chance to invade and cause a revolt and annex the island. Just as they, at the point of embarking, they were given a bit of a surprise. Quitman had been basically working on the assumption that Franklin Pierce was okay with all of this, and that he had the sort of tacit approval. The president made a, a proclamation that it was prohibited now to make any enterprises of, quote, a hostile character um, from the U.S. So it was kind of ramping up the neutrality a little bit. 
Their plans were thrown into disarray. Equipment and five others were hauled into court in 1854. He had had no idea what Soule had been trying to do. And, um, but both schemes in the end by 1854 had run aground. The U.S. Minister to Spain, Augustus Dodge, said by August 1855 that, quote, all the treasure of the earth could not purchase Cuba. So then in 1857 comes along James Buchanan again, whose you know, desire for Cuba had been persisting through this whole time. Now he was president. So he takes an even more circuitous route, and he meets with a banker named Christopher Fallon, who was a U.S. agent for the Spanish Queen Mother. They devise a scheme by which Fallon will concoct a plan for European bondholders who held Spanish debt to pressure Spain to sell the island so that they could pay the bondholders. And of course, the bankers love this. They're like, this is great. But the government's not going to play ball unless you bribe them. So Buchanan arranged for another banker to be basically briber-in-chief, um, and the Senate stifled the appointment. And the reason the whole thing had even gotten to the point of the Senate is that Buchanan was so eager to do this, he pushed all his plans in front of Congress <coughs> so that he could get $30 million appropriated for it. The mood, though, in Washington had changed concerning Cuba, and the bill to prove the money was sent to the Senate, but it was never voted upon. Buchanan was undeterred, and he sent William Preston, a former Kentucky congressman, to Spain to negotiate anyway. The issue of money uh, for Cuba came up once again in 1860 in, the, in Congress, but it never passed. And the election that year of Abraham Lincoln finally brought the annexation question to an abrupt end. Lincoln did not believe that the issue of slavery could be settled without an end to expansion. The Confederate states um, began to murmur about adding Cuba after their own secession, but this died down as the Civil War began. This was not the end of the matter, though the underpinning rationale would be forced to change. The United States abolished slavery in 1863, Cuba finally came to an end in 1886, and between that period, the island had suffered a 10-year-long war for independence that had failed. However, by this point, abolition's in place, and slavery could no longer be used to connect Cuba to the United States. Some of the veterans from that conflict had regrouped in the late 1890s to try again, setting out in the War of Independence in 1895. That conflict melded into the U.S. declaring war on Spain three years later, and that leads me to the last section of the paper and the final attempt to purchase the island, this time in very different circumstances. So, Jose Marti, anyone who's been to Cuba has seen his face many times. By the late 1800s, Cuba had suffered this long war of independence and, and it was about to start a new one. The cost of the island had been great. Cane fields had been ruined and burnt, infrastructure destroyed, tens of thousands of people um, fled to exile in the US. And one such exile was Jose Marti. He's known as the apostle of freedom. He represented in many ways a new thinking about US-Cuban relations. He'd lived in political exile for most of his adult life and was well known on and off the island for his essays and his political speeches. By the 1880s, his time had come. Working out of New York and Tampa, he started to, to plan what became the Cuban uh, War for Independence. Um, however, at one point, he was adamant there would be no annexation or alliance with the US, only Cuba Libre, only free Cuba. And he wrote in one essay of his trepidation to involve the United States, saying, quote, I know the monster well because I have lived in its entrails, which is one of his quite famous quotes. And then wondering in another... Once the United States is in Cuba, who will drive them out? And I think in many ways you could replace Cuba with a lot of different countries, and that, this, that question still has a, a lot of relevance. Um, in addition, Martí and other Cuban exiles living in the United States during Reconstruction after the U.S. Civil War saw at first hand how the question of color persisted despite the abolition of slavery. Many dark-skinned Cubans in the U.S. faced the same discriminations as African Americans. 
For Marti, independent Cuba must have equality at its cornerstone. And this was embodied in some ways or symbolized by his appointing Antonio Maceo, a black general and hero of the previous conflict, to be one of the leaders of, his fight, of this fight. In his 1881 essay, Our America, he makes this vision clear, kind of saying, quote, there's no racial hatred because there are no races. Anyone who promotes and disseminates opposition or hatred among races sins against humanity. By 1895, the attacks had begun. The rebels returned to fight in Cuba. Marti was killed in action that May, Maceo in December. But the rebellion continued. Now, during the Ten Years' War, the U.S. watched a bit from a distance this time it was paying much closer attention. And the annexationists had been replaced by investors, either eyeing a potential bargain or they'd already bought up land or had significant investments in the infrastructure already. Now, not all the Cuban elites backed Marti, fearing a successful rebellion would leave an uncertain future for their wealth. And in June 1896, a group of around 100 planters and industrialists approached President Grover Cleveland to ask for U.S. intervention in the matter, believing that, quote, the worst thing that could happen to Cuba would be independence, end quote. The Cleveland administration continued to support Spanish rule, fearing the island would be too socially volatile if it were independent. Again, much of the U.S. public disagreed. The media had taken up the case of Cuba and run with it. The idea of Cuba Libre had taken hold in the popular press. In the late 19th centuries, the kind of era of what we call, I don't know if it's a U.S. term, but yellow journalism, so this very sensationalist uh, journalism. And there were growing reports um, about Spanish rule on the island, about starvation and mistreatment of people and terrible economic conditions. And then you start to see lots of cartoons like this in the U.S. press during this time. And so, you know, kind of trying to whip up support for, for freeing Cuba from from Spain. But there was little indication in Washington that Cuban sovereignty would be a suitable replacement for Spanish rule. For the majority of Cubans, of course, by this point, and those leading the fight against Spain, it was the only option. In 1897, William McKinley became the U.S. president, and he made one last bid to buy the island, thus resolving in his mind this long-running issue of the legitimate transfer of power which in the U.S. mind seemed to be seizure or purchase for the previous hundred years. In January 1898, he instructed his ambassador in Spain to open purchase negotiations with a limit of 300 million. While those talks were underway, the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor on 15th of February, killing 266 people. The source of the blast was never identified. Some theories attributed to an accident rather than to any attack, but it was a suitable call to war. The U.S. issued Spain with one last ultimatum to leave Cuba, and that was refused. The government and military stepped up their plans. While the press absolutely worked itself up into a frenzy, Cubans must be free, shouted a headline from the Chicago Daily Tribune. Public support soared, and the nation was gripped. There were not, you know, not only newspaper editorials, but sermons and popular songs and all sorts of things about Cuba. McKinley explained to the Congress that the U.S. had to act if Spain refused to leave Cuba because of, quote, the intimate connection of the Cuban question with the, own, with the state of our own union. Part of his concern was the potential damage to U.S. citizens' extensive property holdings on the island, which had continued to grow throughout the 19th century. But intervention had its critics. Many Cubans were now in the, in the U.S. were now denouncing such ideas, as was the growing anti-imperialist movement in the U.S. And this is like a real anti-imperialism cartoon. This is anti-expansionist policy. You can obviously see Uncle Sam is like expanding massively. And then the thing is declined with thanks. Like, we don't want your 
anti-expansionist tonic. And part of the reason the anti-imperialists were concerned was because McKinley had, no, had made no mention of what, what form a future Cuba would take. He, he hadn't directly said it would be free. So whether or not the U.S. was or should become an empire with overseas territories versus the land-based expansion had emerged as a really urgent theme of national debate. The call to war had brought together anti-imperialists who voiced their opinion to any further overseas expansion, though by the time they started holding popular protests in 1898, <coughs> it was in many ways too late except for Cuba. By the 19th of April, Congress passed the joint resolution for war with Spain. And during the Senate debate, Orville Platt, a Republican from Connecticut, defended the need to recognize a free Cuba. He said, quote, if we say in the joint resolution that the people of Cuba are free and independent, we mean that they are free and independent in the sense that we are free and independent. So to these ends, another senator, Henry Teller, a Colorado Republican, offered an amendment to this joint resolution to go to war, inserting a clause that would protect the right of the Cuban people to be free and independent. And many agreed with him. So on the 20th of April, the next day, it passed. Uh, the amendment to the war appropriations bill passed by 42 to 35 in the Senate and 311 to 6 in the House. So pretty clear win. It would stifle any designs by the U.S. government to annex the island. And instead, it forced the U.S. to recognize Cuba's independence. The Spanish-American War started in earnest a few days later, though the first significant strike uh, was made on Spanish possessions in the Philippines in May. Troops didn't land in Cuba till June. By August, um, Spain had surrendered with the Treaty of Paris signed by the end of the year. The Teller Amendment spared Cuba from the fate of the other bits of the Spanish Empire, which was transfer to U.S. rule. Um, the Philippines, the island of Guam, and Puerto Rico were now under U.S. control. Cuba was not. Though the heavy hand of the U.S. presided over the early years um, of the Republic. There were U.S. governors from 1899 to 1902 during the period of transition, and again in 1906 after the collapse of the government of Tomás Estrada Palma. That, that occupation ended in 1909, and in the end, the U.S. had to abide by its own legislation and quit the island. The Spanish-American War finally killed the dream of Cuban annexation. In its place, was what might be called informal empire. The US, U.S. businesses bought up land, most of the island's imports were from the U.S., and there was plenty of political influence behind the scenes. The state of affairs continued, for the most part, through the first half of the 20th century, and the last days of the, perhaps the best-known ones, as you know, the mobsters and the, you know, moved to Cuba, and this is the one that's always the most famous, um, with Havana portrayed like a nightclub, and those people gambling. I had a bit of fun with the photo research for this. So There was, of course, opposition to all of this all along in the island um, and from many diverse sectors. But the U.S. managed to keep its influence really until the rise of Castro and the onset of the Cuban Revolution, where this story kind of, the, the, the U.S. chapter temporarily uh, sort of ends. So to I hope this paper has gone some way to kind of explaining this connection between US, uh, the U.S. and Cuba that goes much further back than the pre-Castro era. Um, the attempts to purchase Cuba aren't really eccentric lips. They really reveal, I think, a lot about Cuba and the United States and how attitudes to slavery and empires change significantly over time. The era of Lopez and the filibusters presents a world where the interests of slave owners and other dubious adventurers and fortune seekers had the attention of the U.S., but not, interestingly, of the wider Cuban people. Lopez has a checkered history on the island. Um, he's considered to be the designer of the national flag and and so, in some quarters, kind of a proto-independista, but his connection to the order of Lone Star... There's a lot of questions that can be raised about the true nature of, of his intentions. But he kind of occupies a, a grey area, I think. But the reality was that the question of independence, in many ways, was 
far less a negotiable one than any sort of annexation or statehood plan. The vision of Cuba Libre won out and it, and, and it, it drove much of what, what happened. Um, for the United States, for the United States, Cuba provided both a foil to its expansionist desires and a mirror giving a reflection of its own regional and global ambitions. For the US, Cuba was part of its geopolitical reality from some of its earliest days, as evidenced by policies like the Monroe Doctrine, which while not mentioning Cuba specifically, was embedded within its meaning. So for the United States, Cuba remains the elusive island, um, even today, so near and so unobtainable still. So. Thank you.